Christina from Gravel Trap F1 here, and I've got some big news. As you're well aware, Formula One is not the only open wheel racing out there. So, the Gravel Trap is expanding its repertoire into IndyCar with a new podcast called Gravel Trap Indy, hosted by myself and our newest member of the Gravel Trap family, Justin Reschke. That's right, Christina. If you're a longtime IndyCar fan or an F1 fan who's been curious about Indy but don't know enough about it yet, we're making a show for you. We'll be covering both current events, races, driver market news, as well as digging deep into the rich history of IndyCar to recount some of the most exciting stories ever to come out of the sport. Join us. It's going to be a blast. Look for Gravel Trap Indie wherever you get your podcasts. Vegas showgirl. It's always a Vegas showgirl. That's right. Vegas showgirl. Vegas showgirl. What else should you be doing? Rodeo clown? <laughs> I'm dead. Everybody, I'm Caroline. I'm Christina. Welcome back to Gravel Trap F1. We're fresh off the Belgian Grand Prix Spa, where it was sometimes wet and sometimes dry. So in the formation lab, we're going to look at the wet weather regulations, what they can do and what they have to do. And then in the Grand Prix segment, we'll take a look back at the history of the Circuit de Spa Francochamps. At the checkered flag, we take a look back at the first half of the F1 season and reflect on the races thus far. And we'll discuss what we'd like to see for the second half of the season. And then we start our summer break. Yes, I promise. Here we go for our maybe singular, maybe multiple formation laps, because that can happen during a wet race, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Wet racing, and more specifically, the rules that change the moment the race is declared wet. So what needs to happen in order for it to be a wet race is that the race director decides it is. It's up to their personal judgment, which I think technically means that if they decided to, they could just be like, mm, it's a wet race, even if there's sunshine in the sky, which would be a hilarious but also very stupid power move. But like, if you're an evil villain, you could put that on your list of things you could do. <laughs> <laughs> but there are a couple big rules right off the bat the moment it's declared a wet race that we can go through. First of all, you don't have to pit. You don't have to use slick tires, two compounds, none of that. You can stick, if the conditions ask for it, on the wet or intermediate tires for the entire race. But... If it's drying, obviously, then, you know, the judgment call comes back into place of, hey, we could pit and we could switch to the slick tires, which is a mm -hmm. fun little twist on strategy that we saw come into play a little bit this weekend. And honestly, it makes sense because they don't give them a ton of compound options in the wet because you only have the two choices. So it makes sense that they would only that they wouldn't require them to do two different compounds. Mm -hmm. Very true. And at the end of the day, it's just about safety. Whenever it is safe to switch to the other tire compound, that's when it happens. Uh, the other big thing is that, yes, the wet intermediate tires become available once it's declared a wet race. You also cannot use DRS while it's a wet race. Mm. So advantage gets shooked away from those Red Bull uh, teams <laughs> that use that, that have that. Some certain teams. <laughs> not, to, not to name names. And then the other thing is that the lights at the back of the car have to be turned on and you will get a penalty yes. if they are not 
So the blinking lights at the back of the cars don't tell you anything about braking or turns or anything like that you would have on a normal car. It's just so that way drivers can more easily see where the car in front of them is because we've seen the Mm -hmm. spray. It's huge. The wet weather tires displace 85 liters of water per tire per second. Like that's that's the potential they have. It is. That's a lot of soda bottles just like Mm -hmm. up into the air wild. And I think that Martin Brundle was talking about that a little bit this weekend during the sprint race as well. He was saying that we as viewers always see it from above. So we're really only seeing five feet, a five foot depth of the spray. But for the drivers, actually, there's so much less visibility than we even realize because they're getting way more than five feet. They're getting the spray all the way back as far as it extends. So honestly, yay for the lights. Very true. And then, yeah, those are those are kind of the big rule changes the second that we are into a wet, a wet, oh my goodness. I'm going to hate I don't like saying the word wet race. I feel like it just is not kind. It is a bit of a tongue twister. I don't love it. But the other thing is that you can declare a rolling start. And if you're doing a rolling start behind the safety car, you also mandatory have to use the wet weather tires. Mm-hmm. It's all a safety thing. Everybody totally. has to use these tires. Big, big thing. The other major change that comes into play the moment we have a wet race is the time. You're going to have a different time constraint depending on all of these sessions have different rules for what they do with their timing. And I get it. They're a different thing. Different things are happening between free practice qualifying and the race. But oh my goodness, I understand why the commentators have to explain it every single time mm-hmm. because it's confusing. It can be so... There's there's a lot going on here. So the timer does not start until the session starts. So they can delay the session as long as they want and it, it won't affect the total amount of time that they can run for. If it's right. during a free practice session that they declare a red flag for the weather, the timer keeps going. A free practice session can only last one hour, regardless Mm -hmm. of how long you stay in that red flag, regardless of how much rain you lose out in a free practice session if you started it and then try to resume it later on. With qualifying, the timer stops. And then race control can decide whether or not they resume that session. You know, Mm -hmm. depending on if there's like, oh, I'm sorry, we're at spa and it takes two minutes to go around and there's only two minutes left on the clock, oh yeah, okay, we're not going to resume this. And where it gets tricky with qualifying is that the moment you stop having sessions, you have to figure out how are we going to order people on the grid? And they do have a couple of options. They can choose to say, hey, we're just going to delay the start of this next session and see how it goes. They can choose to say, hey, we're going to have this session before Sunday. Or if they have the option, they can say, hey, we'll use the representative times from the last free practice session we had. Or if you're this weekend and you didn't have a representative free practice session, they get to go to the drawing board and kind of be like, how are we going to do that? And they decided Mm -hmm. eventually with agreement from the teams, I believe, that it would be based on the championship standings, which... Yeah, that's fair. That's how you have to do things. I I personally would have said go with just reusing the qualifying times from the sprint race. I don't know why that didn't really seem like yeah, an option. Yeah, that does seem like a valid option. Because you have you have another free it's the same metrics right there. They also didn't seem to consider the option of just doing qualifying 
the morning of, which they did have other races going on. They had F2 and F3 there. That's true. Both this weekend. So I get it, time constraints, but these are judgment calls that they have to make. Mm-hmm. And they have Fun to make times. quickly. But they everybody really seemed to be on board with the rolling start for the sprint race for the yes. sake of safety, especially in a place like Spa. I think it's so important because safety is mm-hmm. always a really big question mark there. So it really is. And it's listening to Pierre Gasly this weekend and just him still saying, like, I did not feel safe driving in those conditions. It hits mm. so hard because after mm-hmm. Japan last year where he almost um, he was on track close to a tractor and then you hear about him having nightmares afterwards on the flight home it's it's one of those things where you're kind of just like they still need to do better because it really was just like by grace that we didn't have an incident this weekend we very easily could have we Mm -hmm. it it, just luck at this point that something bad didn't happen we saw Mm -hmm. max almost lose the car going up au rouge and direction so like yeah it happens in a blink of an eye yep yeah. But going back to the run times, we were mentioning the sprint race. A sprint race can run up to an hour and a half and a Grand Prix up to three hours when it's a wet race. If it's a dry race and they red flag it, they only get two hours. But if it's a wet race, they've already started. The clock is going. It can go up to three. Okay. And I do feel Are like you saw you- a lot of track development in the sprint race this weekend because... Mm-hmm. The there was there were so many question marks on tire strategy because typically you don't want to pit right during a sprint race, but I mean it was Carlos Sainz on the radio that was like, "Hey, when the safety car comes in, can I follow them in to get a change?" Because I think that that would be more advantageous. And I'll be honest with you, my heart rate skyrocketed because with the sprint races, they have so many less laps to get things done. So to choose Mm -hmm. to pit, you're choosing to take a pretty big risk. But if everybody does it, then it's less of a risk. But anyway. Very true. And the thing that got me this weekend that I wish they had an alternative procedure to go for is that Mm -hmm. they used up four laps just clearing water off and not actually racing. But it counts as laps towards the total. So Mm -hmm. just kind of, I just wish that there was something else they could do than using the formula one cars themselves to clear off the racing line Mm -hmm. you know this this is formula one and they're all about innovation and tech and so my answer to everything is i don't like how this is done develop something new and fix it yeah (laughs) get like the formula one version of a zamboni out there to just clear it out yes that's what formula e were using Ah. On the, they had these giant sweepers that were basically clearing out the worst of the water, the giant standing water puddles, and pushing it outwards towards the edges of the track. Interesting. Other series do it. Formula One, it, for being the pinnacle of motorsports, still has things that they can learn or copy, yeah. take inspiration from. Yeah. Well, they're always they always seem willing to do and try new things. So mm-hmm. it's not over. You never know. It's true. Speaking of doing and trying new things, which we saw and talked about briefly already this year, the points allocation when you're under a wet race and how they can sometimes be partial, which Mm -hmm. for anybody who who doesn't remember or who wasn't watching, we had a great incident of this in Suzuka, Japan last year. So if you want to hear all about it, go listen to the episode with Sean Kelly, because we ask him about it and we bring it mm-hmm. up and it is a sore subject for those at F1. 
only because it was so chaotic, but get into it, Christina. The skinny of it is that if you don't complete a certain percentage of laps, then you get fewer points. And so the way it was written in the regulations, everybody was running under the assumption that, okay, it's a wet race and we only finish 75%, it'll be this lower number of points awarded. But the way the regulations were phrased was actually that and interpreted as by race control that, or the stewards, Sean Kelly episode, will have the, the clarity on that. I'm forgetting what it was. But the official interpretation of it was that if you finish under green flag conditions, but fewer laps because of the timer, you still get full points. Mm-hmm. You only bring in the reduced points if you cannot finish under green flag racing conditions. We love technicality. We just love it. Yeah. The the regulations have to be very, very explicitly and uh, clearly written because they have to be interpreted by a number of people. And you have yes. to have everybody coming to the same conclusion. If not, they're poorly written. Yeah. And everybody's looking for a loophole because everybody's looking for a leg up. It's true. But that is wet racing. They are not singing in the rain. They are just trying their darned best to see and make it to the end. And on that note, let's head over to Caroline for the Grand Prix. For today's Grand Prix segment is going to be pretty similar to those of the Grand Prix segments of the past, where we just dive into a little bit of history of the Belgian Grand Prix. And you'll hear some names that you recognize, some names you might not recognize, as far as the beautiful history that this Belgian Grand Prix has. Honestly, the very first, well, I'll get there. The original, they say it's a triangle-shaped track. I feel like it's shaped like a water gun. Every time I look at it, I feel like it looks like a water gun. But it was built in, yes, it was built in 1921 with designers that are not our typical people. It's Jules de Terre and Henri Langlois. Henri Langlois. Van Oppen. Oh, Van Oppen. And they used, yes. They used uh, public roads between the towns of Francochamps, right? Did I say that right? Francochamps. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Francochamps. Let's go. <laughs> Malmary and Stavelo to create an incredible 14.9 kilometer circuit. I did not get out my calculator this week to transfer it over. So guys, you're going to have to do the math yourself if you're thinking in miles. It's fat. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's long, but this was the original is not quite the same as the one that they're on now, but they took in the forest, the rolling hills of the beautiful Ardennes region. I will say this track is one of my favorites to watch an onboard on. This is my favorite onboard view of the whole calendar because it's just, it's just so beautiful to just watch them going through the various turns and whatnot. So the track was then redeveloped way later in 1979, although the new circuit was only half of the original's length. So it used to be significantly longer. Uh, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a signi- like it used to be significantly almost. longer. Yes. It's still the longest on the current calendar at 7.004 kilometers. So like not quite seven a little more. Um, and it hosted a non-championship Grand Prix in 1924. 
and that was known as the first Belgian Grand Prix, but it was not considered part of the F1 championship. Um, and it was just one of seven to be part of Formula One's that maiden championship, which was then created in 1950. So they were racing starting in 1924, didn't start counting towards the F1 championship till 1950. That race was won back when Alfa Romeo was killing it in the F1 game. Uh, it was won by Juan Manuel Fangio. And for those who don't know who that is, there is a very famous Fangio award that is awarded, I believe, in Brazil, correct? It's awarded in Brazil. It's the pole position award in Brazil. Um, and he led Alfa Romeo home to the one-two head that race, uh, not in Brazil, in Spa, in 1950 with his teammate Nino Farina. So the current layout is super different to the one that F1 drivers competed on back in 1950, mainly because of safety changes. Granted, remember, people, this is the longest one of the year. So it's the longest one. It's got the most elevation changes. It was previously an 8.761 mile circuit through the Ardennes Forest. And um, now it's significantly shorter. The first race on the new layout, so when they changed everything in 1979, was not until 1981. And since then, there have been a couple of changes, but it's largely the same today as it was then. Only three corners are from the original layout. Blanchiment, La Source, and Eau Rouge slash the Radion section are all from the OG super long track that had to feel like it was never ending when those guys had to drive on it, honestly. Eternity. Truly. So let's talk about some of the incredible iconic moments in Formula One's history that have come from this incredible track. Uh, I already said it before. It's the longest circuit on the 2023 calendar and has the highest elevation of any circuit. It was actually funny to hear Martin and David Crofty talking this weekend. They were saying that when you think about how tall Big Ben is in it's 10 London, times. it's significant. Yeah, 10 times more. Significantly higher or bigger of a change in elevation here like which is just crazy to think about like the amount of momentum that these guys have to get in these cars and drive to get them up the hill like you can't help but wonder it's it is so much longer but it's also so much so different like fighting against gravity so anyways uh despite that the famous track has the smallest crowd capacity with 70,000 oh, yeah. a 70,000 fan limit on race day so even though it's the longest track it can hold the least amount of people, which makes sense because trees. you're like, yeah, you're in the woods. You don't really want people getting lost in the woods. It's kind <laughs> of a danger. So I understand it. Michael Schumacher debuted at the 1991 Belgian Grand Prix and holds the distinction of being the only F1 driver in history to win the World Drivers Championship at the Belgian Grand Prix in Spa when he sealed his seventh and final title in 2004. Back in 1998, one of the costliest crashes in F1 history. If you want to know a little bit more about some costly crashes, go look at our Diamond Heist uh, podcast episode where we talk a little bit about the diamond craziness that happened in Monaco, but we're not going to go into that. Um, this was another highly costly crash that happened in 1998. A huge first lap crash. It involved 13 cars in the crash on the first turn of the first lap of the race, 13 cars crashed race had to be stopped. When it restarted the leader, Michael Schumacher collided with David Coulthard as he attempted to lap the McLaren driver. So it was like a crash on a lap, uh, which gave Damon Hill the win, which was 
then Jordan, the team that he was driving for was called Jordan. That was their first win. But the damages from all the cars from that race cost $24 million in today's like money. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So if you think you have a lot of money, that was a lot of money to have to spend on all those crashes. So then for those of us who are newer fans in 2019, Charlotte Claire became the first driver to score his maiden Grand Prix win at Spa since Michael Schumacher in 1992. And in one of the most dominant showings in F1 history, British driver, Jim Clark back in 1963 won the Belgian Grand Prix by, before I tell you, Max, you think Max Verstappen had a really big lead, honestly, in everything this season. This guy had a 474 second lead on everyone else in the 1963. The leads back in the day were so much worse when they were running. Ridiculous. Like, like so bad. It was so bad. You could have gone for lunch and come back and then saw second, third, and fourth cross the line. Like, it's, it's true. It's nuts. So, yeah. We think it's bad oh. now. It's not nearly as bad as it was back in 1963. But it, it is it is worth uh, noting, and it would be remiss of me to not say this. Formula One is a very dangerous sport. I think a lot of times we will lose sight or forget how dangerous the sport can be as we get lost in the excitement and the true professionalism that all the drivers take to the track every weekend and the talent that they have. It's It's really hard to do what they do. Um, in the last four years, two incredibly talented drivers have died at Spa. Antoine Hubert died in a Formula 2 race, and Dylan Ovandhoff died earlier this season um, and the Regional European Championship circuit, both of which were very young, both of which were lost too soon. Pierre Gasly leads an annual run around the track where all of the paddock personnel are invited to honor Antoine's memory, and this year he honored Dylan as well as a part of that, which is a really, really special thing just to keep their memories alive and also to remember the fragility that this sport has, not only for the cars, but also for the drivers. In total, 49 competitors and four officials have died at this track since the first Belgian Grand Prix in, uh, or since 1925. The first Grand Prix was not in 1925. It was in, uh, what, 19... I think it was 24, but the very next year somebody died. Um, so many lives have been lost here. However, I think that the track continually works to create better safety precautions. It is an ongoing battle at every track, at every race. But this one in particular seems to be on the more dangerous side. So just remember to hug your loved ones and to uh, remember that these drivers are real people that are putting their lives on the line every weekend for us to be entertained and to love them in the way that we do. So that's a little bit of history on the Belgian Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. And I hope that it has inspired you guys to, if you're listening from Europe or anywhere in the world to go, because I've heard it's a really fun one to go to purely because you can't have as many people go. So the, the mm -hmm. uh, crowds are not nearly as bad. I know we would like to, I know I'd like to go one day, but not today. <laughs> oh man. At but bring your raincoat if you go, cause it oh almost gosh, always yeah. rains. Always and rubber boots, yes, rubber yes. boots. I I looked up the height of Big Big Ben. I don't know why mm -hmm. I thought it was ten times the height because yeah, I don't think it's not. ten. I don't think it's ten times. <laughs> but I was looking to go with you, girl. <laughs> they put up a graphic at some point, being like, "This is the height that's ten times something." 
so that graphic does exist somewhere where they compared it to something. But Big Ben is 96 meters compared to mm -hmm. the 102.2. Yeah. So, so it is still taller, but it's not 10x. But it is still I was, I was, girl, I was vibing with you. I was like, whatever like, Christina says is true. It's huge. But it is. I mean, that's still, that's still crazy to think about. Those elevation changes are crazy i mean they're already receiving so many g-forces in the turns but then you're adding the gravity on top of it from all those elevation changes i mean what a roller coaster literally that concludes this week's grand prix section up next we have the checkered flag section with our incredible producer buck welcome back buck hello hello even though he's been here the whole time and is here every single time. Oh, we still we welcome like, we him. Like to, we like to pretend I'm commuting from a long distance away and coming back yes. from my stint as a... Uh, Vegas showgirl. It's always That's a right, Vegas showgirl. Vegas showgirl. Show what else should you be doing? Rodeo clown? <laughs> I'm dead. I like rodeo clown for you. I feel like that well, would... ticket prices to the Vegas Grand Prix are so high that I've decided I might as well just get employed. Pursue a new career to get in. Exactly. I'll be in town anyway. I so, love it. Uh, we are at the midway point of the season. It is exactly oh half halfway done. And today we're going to just get your thoughts on the season thus far. Find out also what we'd like to see from the second half of the season. So... Uh, my question for you, what do you think of the season thus far? Max is a fantastic driver. I'm really glad that he's like, it's, it's cool seeing somebody who is so dominant continuously perform. I will say that that is what he's doing is absolutely phenomenal skill wise, but I am very glad that the broadcasts aren't exclusively showing that and that we're getting to see the battles all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, at the start of the season, I said that like, I'm a fan of Alpine and that I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do. Um, I'm just big sad now, but in French, big sad. Because <laughs> it has, I'm glad that we ended on a high note before going into the summer. Like Pierre getting third place at Spa of all yeah. places. Very excited for that. Very just like, oh my goodness, thank goodness we ended on a high note for them. Same with McLaren. Like mm -hmm. those two teams just had such a rough start to the season. You know, Preach. looking back to to Bahrain, you had Lando continuously pitting. Because Five they had to stops. put air in his car. Um, I still don't even fully know what that air does, but they were putting it in. And then Alpine at that point had Esteban getting his first of many multiple penalty rounds. So, yikes! you know, great, great feeling to start there. And then now they've gotten multiple podiums, both of them. And it's, uh, I, I feel both better and worse than I did. Start of the season for that. Very conflicted yeah. over here. It has not been one of my favorite seasons purely because I feel like with the Red Bull dominance that just literally has been here from the very beginning, from race one, day one, I think it it just it makes it hard to watch every weekend because you know, you just know going into it what it's going to be, but I have really enjoyed seeing the individual driver development. I think that that's been really fun to watch. Whereas before I feel like last season you were really rooting for team development and seeing you wanted to see Ferrari developing and, and 
getting to the Red Bulls and you wanted to see Mercedes developing and et cetera. I feel like this season for me has been watching driver development, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I've loved seeing the new rookies coming in this season. I think that's added a, a really nice element to the sport because it actually begs the question of who's going to be the rookie of the year as opposed to last year where there was one rookie. So it's obvious who's going to be the rookie of the year. Um, I like seeing new fresh talent and seeing Aston Martin like kind of showing up at the beginning of the season made it pretty exciting. So those are my thus far, you know, impressions. I feel like the second half of the season, like you want it to be interesting, but you kind of know it how it's going to end unless something really crazy happens, which it probably Mm -hmm. won't. But I feel like never say never. Everyone's kind of just looking towards next year at this point, but I'm excited for Coda. I think that's going to be fun just to be there, but yeah. True. It's a sprint race. F1 Academy will be there. It's yes. Cowboy Danny Rick. This season has been about looking at the other things. Not the driver's championship. <laughs> I feel like that's what this season has been about. <laughs> Drilling down to be to more specifics, who for you personally is the most improved driver? Mm, like the easy answer is Oscar, but I feel like it's more so because more so of the car, less because of his ability, because he's always been good. Like I feel like we're finally getting to see Oscar in his in his proper light. Um individual driver but actually unpopular opinion but i actually feel like yuki is, is my yuki. like most that's what improved, i was thinking my most improved driver over the course of the season i feel like he's he's really started to come into his own this season that's been really nice to see didn't mean to take your answer christina sorry <laughs> we're allowed to have the same answer yeah <laughs> no it is yuki he's He's getting a chance to stand on his own two feet away from like the big brother so helpful when you're Mm -hmm. a rookie influence. But now he just has to he has to go on his own and be his own person that isn't just riding in Piaz's sidecar as much as I love Mm -hmm. that. It's it's been really nice. And you're just hearing the maturity in his voice and how he's being a lot more self-critical of himself. It wasn't it's no longer just about. I'm trying to get the most out of all these people around me. It's like, no, I want us all as a team to collectively get the most out of this moment. It's just a nice head shift for him. So who would be the driver or team that has surprised you the most? Where like you didn't see that coming and you're just, you're blown away at their performance this far. I think coming out of last year, the biggest surprise was Aston Martin at the top of the season, I think over the course of the season so far, it's been McLaren. I kind of like from the beginning was kind of like, all right, this is not gonna be a good year for McLaren. We're just looking to next year. And then all of a sudden they it was like, it bam, out. McLaren is here. <laughs> but that's just my take. I, I agree. Those ones are great. I'm also going to throw Williams in there because yes, I expected Williams. them. Yes. Yeah, I expected them to have a bit more of a transition period because they have the new team principal. And I always find that that gives you, you know, King a, James, it's change. And it's a it's a little bit of a, an unsettling feeling that you have to, mm-hmm. you know, figure out how your team is going to work now. What's the different dynamic? But he came in and has kind of just seamlessly built on the good that they previously had and has just been fine tuning everything else. And mm-hmm. to hear him and Alex especially talk about each other and how they work together, and you can see such a good, strong 
partnership building between them, which is fantastic. And it's a great place for a rookie like Logan Sargent to be because listening to vowels and how he talks about building things up, that's a great place, I think, for Logan to be as well because he's just he's getting the chance to make those mistakes that rookies do make and not have it feel like the weight of the world in the same way that I think other rookies from this year, <clears throat> Nick DeVries, would have potentially felt. Of the was it 12 races so far, mm-hmm. if you had to pick one to be the most exciting race, your favorite race weekend, which would it be? Mm. The most memorable to me is Australia. <laughs> I was thinking Australia, but I'm because that was yeah. Go in, go in Australia, go in Australia. Because I'm going to say something else. I I will also say I think that one of the reasons why Australia is memorable to me is that I was actually awake. (laughs) So many of the European races or the other times I was watching at like the stupid hours of the morning where I had just woken up and I wasn't fully there. But Australia, it was the end of the day. It was starting at I want to say 10 p.m., which I can rally. I can stay mm-hmm. up until 1 a.m. and still, you know, be there. Uh, but that one, that one sticks out in my mind as kind of just being like, Ugh. and then as well, I'm going to say Silverstone because that no, had... that's what I was going to say. No, you can, you can say why, but I will agree with you. It was a good one. I was like, no, because I was thinking Australia. And then I was like, no, Christina's going to say Australia. So I'll hold on to my Silverstone. Um, no, the brain yeah. share today. We are just on the same wavelength. No, I think Silverstone, mostly because I think I left Australia like equal parts happy and sad because of all the red flags and all the insanity. And I think that Carlos's penalty at the end, like still not over it, still thought it was unfair, but... That was tragic. Yeah. And that's why Australia was like most exciting, but also like low-key most painful. And... um. Silverstone to me was the most exciting race of the season purely because you got to see the electric excitement in the crowd when Lando was leading the race and like the hope that swelled across the world at like, wow, we might have a different outcome that was eventually crushed. But like, even still, it was a really exciting race to get to see some shakeup, to see some different difference that nobody saw coming. I just... Yeah, loved it. Both of these, both of the races we chose have Alpine double DNF. <gasps> You're so right. <laughs> You're so right. That's so I'm funny. So sorry. Oh, oh no. Well, I'm not really like, a self-proclaimed Alpine fan, but you are, Christina. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to see from the re- second half of the season? Anybody else win? Just anybody else. <laughs> I don't care who, I don't care if it's because like half of the grid crashes into each other. Actually, I would care if that happened. Quite frankly, that'd be horrible. Yeah, but if it was like terrible. a minor crash of like, you know, they all just hit each other slightly and none could continue. Um, I would live with that. But yeah, I just, I need Max to have his one bad day per year at some point. It's going to happen. Yeah. As much as, as lovely as the Dutch national anthem is, I think I'd like to hear a different (laughs) national anthem just because I have that one memorized already. I'm ready to memorize another one. And I would really like to see a safe Suzuka race. That's really important to me. Yeah. That's really important to me. I need a safe Japanese Grand Prix. I need a safe Japanese Grand Prix. I also want to see Vegas be good racing 
not a race of show cards. Like, I don't want it to be like a spectacle, you know? I want it to actually be a race. That's kind of what I want to see through the rest of the season. But ideally, if I get to choose Mm -hmm. where I hear a different anthem, I want it to be in Austin because I want to hear it live. I want to hear, honestly, I'd love for Lewis Hamilton to win a race Mm -hmm. this season. I think that'd be really special. I know he didn't get his like record, whatever last year, but I just would love to see it. I think, I think he needs the win. (laughs) Well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Uh, Listeners will have a Q and a in the Spotify version of this podcast that you can give us your thoughts and feedback uh, at the midway point of the season and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even threads. We'll be looking out for your opinions as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to hearing from you next time. Bye. Ka-chao. Really close qualifying times this year. I feel like that has also, you asked about like impressions of the season so far qualifying has been more exciting than the race that has been just the overall feel the one lap pace is very close between all yeah. of these cars they yeah. just need to figure out their long race stints pace. like yeah come on <laughs>